above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. This verse, these verses, 12 and 13 of Ephesians chapter 6, um, make it very clear that uh, there is another part of us, and that part of us is struggling in another realm. Remember we talked early in the series of classes about our connection to somehow tethering to another realm that the book of Ephesians refers to as the heavenly places where this battle takes place. Well, it's very poignant in chapter 6, uh, where he tells us on no uncertain terms the nature of this battle. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Now remember, these are terms that, we, that, that cropped up in our study of the, the evil um, entities against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And by the way, this cosmic powers could easily be one person. This could be an epithet for Satan. <clears throat> um, even though it's translated as powers, the Greek word is not so clear that it's that it's plural. Um, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So you've got heavenly places, and we always think of heaven as the place where God is, but heavenly places has to do with this spirit realm where there are all kinds of spirits, and among those spirits are uh, quite clearly several that intend to do us harm. We're somehow engaged in a battle against those forces, even though we can't see them. Why then? <clears throat> Would the writers of the scriptures tell us that we have to walk by faith and not by sight? And why would they give us, why would Paul lay out a long series of verses here about the spiritual armor that we're given to ward off the fiery darts of the evil one? Um, if they're arrows that we can't see, then they have to be, they have to bounce off of an armor that we can't see. But we're instrumental in this battle, aren't we? Even though it's one that we can't, we're not always aware that we're participating in, <clears throat> maybe we're not aware of how costly we are in this warfare on a daily basis or how our, what our victories look like in that realm. Nevertheless, we're told on no uncertain terms that we are participants in that battle, in these battles. So he tells us then, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So it is important what kind of stance we take in this. It's not just a battle that we don't have any control over. So it's just gonna go on with or without us. And so it doesn't matter what we do. This is just something that's outside of our experience. No, we are participants. What we do does matter and um, if we don't stand firm, then these forces have a way of, of uh, defeating us. And uh, in the larger battle, maybe we're just a pawn, I don't know. Or maybe we're quite important in this battle. Um, 
Apparently it's pretty important to God that we participate in it. Uh, but whatever the case is, the, the price of not doing our part, the, the part of not participating in that warfare and not fighting these battles has consequences uh, that we may not even be aware of, we, that we may never witness as long as we live in this world. And I think this is going to be one of the great ahas when we get to the other side and we witness this spiritual realm uh, to know the fullness of exactly what this passage is talking about, this war that we're fighting. <clears throat> and so there's a battle that goes on that is within us, and then there's a battle that goes on outside of us, and these are two different fronts in the same war. So we're participating in the battle that goes on inside, we're also participating in the battle that goes on out there. Because all of these people and all of those people and all of those people are all participants in the same warfare. They also have a presence in the spiritual realm because they're spirit beings. <clears throat> so first of all, I want to just mention in passing a few of the things that Paul talks about that take place in the battle outside of us. And this, I think, is written especially about the apostles and in particular Paul and his traveling company as he went, was going about fighting this warfare in the, uh, in, largely in Asia Minor and also in, somewhat in Europe and also in the Middle East, uh, in, in uh, Jerusalem and in its surrounds. For though we, he says, and I take that to mean Paul and his companions in context, Walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, put in yellow all the language of warfare. We're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, that's a battle term, isn't it? Stronghold. You're taking down enemy strongholds, fortifications, places where the enemy's concentrated. We destroy, but now notice in blue, the kinds of things that are actually happening in this external battle that Paul is fighting. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You see the, kind of, the kinds of victories that Paul is trying to win? It's a victory for our minds, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's a battle for minds. It's a, a battle for ideas raised against the knowledge of God and take, warfare terminology, every thought captive to obey Christ. And he goes on to talk about some disciplinary issues that the apostles were engaged in. Um, I think this is instructive for us that there is a battle to fight out there and I don't think necessarily Paul's participation in that is gonna be the same as ours is. But the point is that we all are participating in a battle that rages out there. And the weapon, weaponry that we use in that battle are things that he'll line up for us probably in, well, in uh, the book of Romans in chapter 12 in particular, um, fighting in a way that the enemy just frankly doesn't understand. Um, blessing in place of curse and not taking vengeance and 
and uh, killing them with kindness. And if your enemy is um, hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Those sorts of things. This is the way we fight. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Um, so it's warfare terminology, and we're fighting for ideas, but the way we do that is through kindness. Interesting and challenging, very challenging. It requires um, another kind of thinking, otherworldliness, we've been talking about so often. Now let's turn our attention for a minute to the battle within. Anybody have anything they want to say about that before we move on? I think our, our faith is uh, if it's just strong then your armor is strong but if your faith is weak then you're, you're in trouble okay that gives meaning to the idea of walking by faith and not by sight doesn't it if your faith is strong then you're powerful in this battle if, if your faith is weak then you're probably more costly right and uh, I said at the end of the last class, it's, this, it's kind of the, it strikes me as being the equivalent of a couple of other phrases. One that we're going to run across in Romans chapter 8, minding the things of the Spirit. That's another description of the way we fight. We're averting our minds from the things of the flesh and minding the things of the Spirit. And another way that it's put is in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Um, this is not seeking our righteousness, that Jesus spent a lot of time talking against that, didn't he? So did the Apostle Paul. It's not seeking our righteousness, it's seeking his righteousness, seeking to justify God through our behavior. Um, because ultimately, this battle is fought to the glory of God. So we're seeking first the kingdom of God. What kind of kingdom is that? You see it? It starts bringing all these pictures to mind that are otherworldly, and we, we want to sit in that world and dwell in it for a little while when we, as we go through this class. But those two battles cannot be disconnected. Uh, which ones? The, the one within? The one within and the one without. Well, no, they're the, same, they're the same war. They're two different fronts in the same battle, you might say. Absolutely. Don't mean to say there are two different wars going on here. This is one war that we're fighting. And we're fighting on two different fronts at the same time. Okay, so here's Peter's description of the war within. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And he's talking to people who are exiled. Jews who are exiled in the Roman Empire. So he urges them to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against the soul. And of course, what impact will that have on the Gentiles around them? The pagans around them, uh, who, and I don't know if you've ever read much about the morality about morality in the Roman Empire, but I mean these were very decadent, uh, very immoral people, and even the society was structured around immorality. It was typical for a Roman male citizen to have a boy um, that he kept as his partner, um, and. And as long as um, if he was a citizen, it would be a shame for him to take the role of the boy, but it was honorable if he had the dominant role in such a relationship. That's, that's 
This is normal in the Roman Empire. Prostitution was such an industry that prostitutes were in constant demand in the Roman Empire. To the point where after a few years, <clears throat> prostitute was described as just a corpse. Um, because they just grinded through prostitutes so fast in that industry. Can you could just imagine the millions of people with a demand on so few women, a lower class women, slaves could be taken as sexual partners and it was perfectly legal and perfectly legitimate and honorable if you had a slave as a sexual partner. Um, this is the environment that um, <clears throat> Christians were exiled into and then told this is the way you behave if you want to win the battle. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, I've been talking about sexual passions, and that's where our mind typically goes when we think about passion. But talk to me for a minute about passions of the flesh. The flesh has so many passions, doesn't it? It's passionate about so many things. What are some of them? Food. Okay, basic living necessities that are taken in excess, right? Shopping. Shopping, okay, stuff. <laughs> You're stepping on some toes now. <laughs> um, yeah, accumulation of stuff. Um, what else? I heard a story recently. Well, there was, I think of you know the gladiators and all that kind of blood sport in the Roman world. And I heard a story recently about how that ended. Uh, there was a Christian. I don't remember his name, uh, some sort of leader, and he actually went into the arena to try and stop it, and they ended up killing him, but he became sort of the martyr for ending those that kind of blood sport. Uh, and interestingly, after just a few centuries, the Rome that I just described was absolutely supplanted with Christian morality. Christian morality became the norm in Rome after just a few centuries from the time <clears throat> that the Apostle Paul lived. By 500, 600, that kind of morality had been completely unseated as the norm. It, it says that we can win. <laughs> right. What are some of the other passions? Technology. Okay. Entertainment. Um, Recreation has become a god in our society. And we're allowing our kids to bow down to it. Self-importance. Pardon? Self-importance. Self-importance, power. Okay, huge. Money. Okay, you know, we could go on a long time, couldn't we? <laughs> How about just giving yourself the license or licensure to be angry whenever you want to be angry? Um, to be arrogant, to step on people, you know, these kinds of things. That's a fleshly passion. Greed. For some people, it's, a, it's an overwhelming passion. Greed is another. Envy. Greed and envy, two related passions. Of Just passions as a part. It doesn't mean to be sexual. Just That's right. Passions as a Yeah, passion is some, anything you're passionate about. You can be passionate about good things. But he's here talking about the passions of the flesh in particular. Okay? And he says, they wage war against your soul. And I find once you have 
teased out the difference between soul and spirit, the choice of words, and this is the Greek word psyche or psyche, um, he's saying wage war against you personally. That's what he's saying here. This is not wage war against your spirit, which I, I think it does, but he's saying this is, these passions of the flesh have picked you out and they're waging war against you personally. It's personal. Because we all have our personal passions, right? Don't we? Every one of us has our own set of passions. Some things that we're very strong in. Some things that we are dominant we, it, over, our, over our passions, areas. But then there are other passions in which every one of us... I, I know a woman who is just morbidly obese and she finally had to have flat band surgery to, to lose weight. And she lost a lot of weight. And I saw her one time. I couldn't believe it was the same person. She said, you know, I'm usually a pretty together person, but this is just one thing that dominated me. She said, I just couldn't kick it. Well, you know, we all have those, don't we? Some, some people's are more obvious than others, but we've all got them. That's part of, part of the human condition. But it, it is, it's personal. Okay, so what does that battle within look like up close? And I... I'm thankful for Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. And the first thing I'd like to do, we can analyze this later, but you really miss something if you don't just read through this. And read through it with the mind that you're going to try to understand the struggle that Paul is describing here. Okay? So forget about the naughty language. I mean, this is... You can get all tied up in knots reading through this um, when all the I do and I don't and I wish and I don't want and I do anyway and all that sort of thing. But just listen to Paul as he describes the human condition. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me, within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? See how he just builds the frustration, just builds as he goes through this explanation. And, and he's maybe a little addled by it himself. He's a little tangled up in it. And it just crescendos with this exclamation. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, Paul, I can relate. I get it. 
Now, he says some pretty confusing things along the way. We can take some time to tease some of that out if you like. But overall, I, I get the picture. He even goes as far as to say that he feels like there's a law operating in his members. That when he wants to do the right thing, he <laughs> defaults, it seems, to doing the wrong thing. You ever feel that way? I think we're probably like something, something uh, superhuman if you've never felt that way. And it, it's a comfort to me, Jay, um, that Paul can feel that way too. <coughs> because you get the picture that you get of Paul as somebody who didn't care anything about his own body, just marched straight into a city where he knew he was going to get stoned or beaten or whatever else, and, and just said, I'll take it. And, you know, get everybody else out of here. I'll be the one to take the beating. I don't know if, if anybody other than Paul ever got beat. We don't know about it. We just always hear the beat, beatings that Paul took. And yet, Paul is the one who writes this. And I take a great deal of comfort in knowing that, that a paragon of virtue like Paul, who buffets his body daily and brings it under subjection, so that when he preaches to others, he, won't, he himself won't be a castaway, that even, even he can feel the way that I feel sometimes. What do you want to say about that? And without faith... He could not possibly have uh, dealt, dealt with his conscience or his relationship to God. Right. Right. Um, without faith, and specifically, without faith that God is as gracious as the scriptures des describe him as being toward the entire human condition and towards me in particular, without that understanding of, of the very reason that Christ came into the world is because he knew that condition. And you know, if, and he wished to forgive it. If I put myself in his shoes numerous times when he was prodded to not go to Jerusalem, knowing what they knew, knowing what he knew, uh, the flesh would say, you're crazy, Jay. But his faith was in God that whatever happened, God was going to see that through. If, if he wanted Paul dead, Paul died. But if he wanted him to, to, to pass through that, Lord's will was supreme in his mind. And his faith was in that. And it's not just Paul. That's the, you know, that's the thing I want to keep reminding us all of. It's not just Paul. Right. It's us. We can have the same kinds of victories that Paul had. We can act the same um, extraordinary ways that Paul acted, whether in great ways or in small ones, in our lives by having the same kind of faith that Paul had. We have that ability to be as otherworldly as Paul. Uh, we're not Abraham, but we're the children of Abraham. We're not not Abraham. We got some Abraham in us. We can be that person. And it's extraordinary when that happens. Marty, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, that's kind of ironic. The first, and some of you may have heard me tell this story, 
the first adult class I went to at 12th Street with Debbie, um, I wasn't a Christian at the time, never had read my Bible. And Scott Gary was teaching the class, and Gary Hammer is on Romans, and he asked me to read this passage. And Debbie slides over her uh, New King James Version, and I stumbled, bumbled, and fumbled through it. And I got to the end of that whole thing, and I'm thinking, boy, this fella sure needs some therapy. <laughs> I could say and do and be anything I wanted and sleep very well at night because I could tell myself these rational little lies and, you know, conscience wasn't seared at the time. And then I put on Christ and I got baptized. And from that day on, that war has been raging ever since. And I get it. I didn't get it when I read it that first time, that first class. I just, I wanted to crawl underneath the seat when I got done with it. But yeah. That's the first thought I had was, boy, he needs therapy. Now, <laughs> now we need now therapy. Now, who does? No, it's not, you know, it's not bad that this battle goes on no. inside of us. Yeah. It's good that this it, battle it, is going on. Because it wasn't inside. there before. That's right. There, if, now it if you're living according to the flesh, there's no battle. No. no. See, there's always hope. I'm married a heathen. And he became a Christian. There's <laughs> hope so even for him. Is that what you're saying? I've been called <laughs> but I like you that the contrast that we know of Paul makes this exceptionally important. This is the same guy that says, I came to preach Jesus and him crucified. Like that was his single vision. I'm going to knock down a wall. I'm going to preach Jesus and him crucified. And then, like Marty says, you read this. And if I were to stand up and kind of regurgitate this in all the words, Y'all would say, Eric's really messed up. <laughs> That's what we would say. He's really, he's got some big problems. Yeah. But yet he's this other, he's achieved success and greatness and righteousness at the same time. So it's, the contrast is good. David? Yeah, I think that's so important that the battle is, is not a bad thing. The conflict is not a bad thing. Um, that's, among other things, telling us that our conscience is working. Paul says that we can sear our conscience and which is kind of like saying there's no battle anymore and I, I remember somebody said one time you know uh, jumping off a cliff feels like you're flying for a little while you know um, and the same idea with that battle you know it feels sure it feels great for a little bit to there's no conflict anymore but we know that the, when sin is full grown it brings forth death so um, when we do experience that battle, you know, we should in some ways be encouraged just to know that <laughs> we're still in the fight, you know. As they say, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the sudden stop at the end. <laughs> I've often wondered if Paul, prior to meeting Christ, felt the same guilt he feels after meeting Christ. Like, had the same conflict, um, just because of the way, you know, he lived for so many years. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is interesting to think about that way, but yeah, he said he, he lived with a clear conscience. Mm -hmm. um, Paul, Paul's own description of his experience there, though, was that, that he was seeking his own righteousness by the law. And he projects that on other Jews who were also living under the law and trying to find righteousness by preciseness, exactness, and law-keeping. And that's what he spends most of the book of Romans and practically all the book of Galatians arguing against, is that you don't 
find a relationship with God and you don't keep a relationship with God and you don't fulfill a relationship with God primarily by excellence in law keeping. Any law. He begins talking about the old law, but then he begins talking about laws that have been imposed, superimposed on us by other people. And he says none of that, excellence in, in law keeping, by its very nature, is in, it's impossible for that to save you. You have to be saved by something different than that. Law has the ability to kill, he says. It doesn't have the ability to save from death. What has the ability to save is Jesus Christ and his resurrection and faith in him and the grace of God because he, from the very beginning, wanted to show us favor and wanted to save us and has made a path for that to happen. That's what makes us justified. It's not excellence in law keeping. And we need to pass that along to our kids because otherwise they're going to struggle mightily. Well, and I don't think I was raised that way because back years, I mean, I didn't hear anything about grace and mercy, and not that I recall, you know, and it was, yeah. you're going to hell for this. My experience is like yours, Debbie. I didn't hear grace a lot growing up either. That's I think, one of the reasons I, I'm convinced we've got to talk more about this with our kids. Yeah, I grew up with a lot of guilt. Still have it. I can't shake it, mm -hmm. you know. Well, it causes, it causes psychological problems, and I'm convinced that that's one of the problems that my sister had to the day she died, was this constant sense that it was all up to her, and she just knew she, would, she wasn't capable of, of being everything she had to be. Um, and it messed her up in some pretty serious ways. And what you see is, over and over again, as Paul, Paul's writings is, rejoice over that. Yeah, right. And I think... We also struggle with that too. Yeah, is is you know we it's good to recognize the war and the we need to feel shame and you know and repent over that. But then you see him. He finishes this, this section. Thanks be to God mm -hmm. for Jesus Christ. And then you know other letters, other passages. Rejoice. Spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> but you know I I, I think. It's such a wonderful thing to just keep reminding ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And we, are, we will turn this around, but not tonight. We're gonna, first, we're going we're gonna to dwell in the world where Paul's in conflict. And we're going to let that soak in. We're going to ask ourselves, what would it be like if we had this kind of oppressive view of ourselves and we didn't have the happy ending in verse 25? And not just in verse 25, but in verse 26, and then Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 through 5, and then all the benefits that will follow. Romans chapter 7 and 8, of all the regrets that I have about the way that those people who divided up the chapters and verses divided material up, chapter 7 and 8 really belong together. If you stop at chapter 7, you're, you're really doing yourself out of some really important follow-on to what Paul is saying here. So we're going to do that. And that's going to be the conflict resolution that we talk about on Sunday. Okay? Great. Thank you for your comments. So we owe it to ourselves to break this down a little bit because there are some confusing things about this. And, and, and I think it'll be helpful to, to put some of these things in perspective so we can read this and not get, get so lost in some of the confusing things that Paul says and miss the, the main point. So I just wanted to read through it first, get the big picture, get the, 
the message that Paul's trying to send. And now let's go back through it and see how he breaks this down. He starts in verse 4. And of course, the story starts before that, but in verse 14, he talks and starts talking about this conflict. He says the law, and I believe he's talking about the law of God, could be the law of Moses, because he fades in and out of, of that sort of view of the law of Moses in his writings. The law of God is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I can't think of any other analogy than slavery when I read that um, that phrase, sold under sin, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And then I put under that because it seems to be a continuation of the same thought. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing that I hate. Okay, so that's section one. Section two. Now if I do not if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. Do you understand that? The fact that you don't want to do bad, but you want to obey the law, implies that the law is good. And you know that the law is good. And you agree that the law is good. So, now this is confusing. It is not longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Some people read this and they say, so what, we're not responsible for our own sins anymore? It's the old, for those of you who are my age, Flip Wilson's The Devil Made Me Do It routine, right? Um, well, if the devil made you do it, you're not responsible, right? It's sin that's living in you, it's not you. Well, there are lots of, plenty of verses in the Bible, and we're going to spare you the time to go through them all right now that tell us that, yes, we are personal, personally responsible for our own sins. So what's he saying here? I don't think he's trying to, obviously he's not escaping the moral responsibility of it, but he's still speaking to the control that sin has over your own actions, whether you grant it that control and you're, maybe you're, you're not always complicit in what is being done. A lot of times you are, but it, it has that, that unconsciousable control over you. And, it's a, and the, the degree of control is extreme, isn't it? So, I mean, he's, he's saying, I mean, you all know me well enough that I can say this and, and you won't take it too literally. But if I said to you, it's, sin is this, fleshliness is this alien force that just occupies me. It just takes me over. Now, I'm not denying personal responsibility. I'm just saying that's how powerful this force is in people. When we have these passions, our flesh has these passions that scream at us, and we have the spirit over here whispering to us, and we pay attention to the screaming rather than training ourselves to listen to the whisper of God. It's just like you're taken over by this some... Well, the devil is safe. And, okay. and if, you don't, if you don't listen, you know, and just let it come inside you, He's going to take over. Jay? You used a word that is important to emphasize. What are you trained by? If you're trained to listen to the flesh, 
you'll listen to the flesh. If you're trained to listen to the Spirit, to listen to God, that'll, that'll be more audible, more easily understood than the flesh. And we're in that war. What are we trained by? So you, you go to, as the policemen and the soldiers will tell you, you divert to your training. You revert to your training. Uh, David, uh, First well, basically along the lines of what Jay was saying, you know, when, when we make decisions on a daily basis, we're not, it's not, that decision is not isolated in that moment. We're developing who we are. We're training ourselves to be one way or another. And I think scripture talks in multiple, how we can get so far down, get trained or whatever word you want to use, so far into sin that it does become, it does take us over, but that's a decision. Those are thousands of decisions we've made. It's not out, something out of our, our control, but it's thousands of decisions we've made throughout our life that have put us down this path towards being controlled by sin. So I think that's just something we all, always have to remember. It's not just, I made a decision one day and I'm taken over by sin. It's oh, years and years of decisions usually that build up to this point where we are trained by sin or overcome by it. David, I accept that what you're saying is generally true, but then we have these surprises that we get. It's the old, what Paul says, whoever thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Um, I mean, David, a man after God's own heart, a lifetime of godly character. I mean, who saw that coming, right? Yeah. Um, Samson doesn't disappoint us as much because we never expected much out of him. He was fraught with struggles throughout his lifetime, but a moment of faith at the end of his life led even Samson, who was this fraught individual, to have an extraordinary moment for the Lord and be recognized as a hero over Israel. So there, there are things that can happen in the moment. Which I think goes, goes back to prove that we are still in control. It's, it's, we never get to the point where we're completely overtaken by it, but you know what I'm saying. I do. Like I said, I agree with what you say. I just want us to remember that, and the world is composed of all different kinds of people. We've got our Samsons and we've got our Davids. David. David. <laughs> <laughs> That feeling of it being an alien force that's taking control is stronger the the harder you're fighting in the battle because I mean you think about Paul who was fighting hard for people who again like we talked about earlier aren't even in the battle they feel like they're completely in control they don't feel like it is sin who has taken over them but say there's a particular sin that I'm you know, in um, conjunction with the Holy Spirit I'm working on, and then there's a moment where I just lose it, you know, I have a David moment or whatever, then, you know, an hour later I'm like, what was that, you know, but, but when you're far into it, it doesn't feel alien, it yeah. feels like this is all me, you know. That's an excellent point, and I think kind of building on that, you also said um, David and Samson use the word expectation. Like, we wouldn't expect that. I think what Paul primarily is saying here is that 
when you put on Christ and you're a new person, there's new expectations and people look at you and treat you a different way because they're expecting you to behave a certain way because you are a new creature in Christ and that largely uh, is supposed to exclude sinful behavior. We know because we live in the flesh that it won't at times. So at times that we fail or become weak, it's not because people are expected. Like people, you know, when people fail us because of the flesh, we would say, why would you do that? Or that isn't like you. I think that's what Paul means. It's like, I know it's not like me. I know that's not what you're expecting me to do. I'm, it's something that I did uh, in spite of being a Christian, you know, um, is kind of, I don't know, the image that I kind of get here is that we are going to fail, but we have to make sure that people know that when we do fail, it is because there is a spiritual battle, and it uh, has very little to do with um, an ongoing uh, complicity on our part. Uh, and uh, decide in your mind whether you agree with me here or not, but I, I really think that Christians need to be setting up the proper expectations with those who live around us. If we give people the impression that we think we're infallible, because we're Christians, mm -hmm. that we think we're better than other people, that we are, we can be expected not to sin. People are going to watch us like a hawk, I tell you, and they're going to find something, and they're going to say, "See." Okay. So, what kind of expectations do you want to set up with people? You want to set up the expectation: Look, I'm a human being. I'm fallible like everybody else. I want to be good. I'm not always. So, when you see me fail, don't be surprised by that. I'm human. And fortunately, I serve a God who's gracious and who will forgive me because I have a relationship with him. And he's the kind of God you can have a relationship with, too. And he'll give you the same kind of grace he gives me. All right. Let, let's move on. Uh, he repeats that phrase. You notice at the end of this section, he repeats that same phrase about this alien force taking over. He says, I know nothing, is good, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Explanation. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil do it, that I do not want is what I keep on doing. So, and he sums up the same way. He's really going through a second cycle here, isn't he? The same, same issue. So now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And in the last two minutes, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The, harder, the more you want to do what's right, guess what? If you are a champion in battle, who does the enemy, who's the enemy going to focus on? Who's going to come after the most? He'd love to take down the champion. He's already got the sinners. If you, if you cost him more than other people are costing him, he's coming after you. Be ready for it. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. You got these two strong forces fighting against each other, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It just lives there. It's just part of being carnal in my flesh. There is dwelling this law that wants to attract me in a different direction. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? See you Sunday. <laughs> <laughs>